I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Seth Stewart. Seth is best known for his performance as Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson in Hamilton, as well as originating the role of Graffiti Pete in Miranda's In the Heights. Seth also has numerous film credits to his name, such as Karma Club and Sex and the City. Seth also has a passion for writing and creating characters that possess great depth. When he's not doing that, he's probably listening to hip-hop, watching a superhero movie, or trying to save the planet. Seth, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Seth, to get things rolling here, I want to talk about a passion that's very near to you, that's very dear to your heart, a passion to preserve the environment. What ignited that passion within you? Um, growing up, I played a lot of sports and I, and I danced my face off. So I never really had time to go out into the natural world. (laughs) And then, um, actually right between, I think in the Heights off Broadway and on Broadway, I went camping one time and I got lost for like a half a day, uh, a full day. And I was like, I have no idea what I would do. And that really bothered me as a human. And, um, and then, so I started to go take some classes on like, you know, um, primitive skills and I did a sweat lodge, um, with some elders, with some native elders, uh, and, and some of them weren't, um, and I came out of that sweat lodge and I was changed. I looked at the stars different. I looked at the whole world around me different. I was probably 23 or 24. And that, from that moment, uh, on, um, Oh, actually, in the sweat lodge, I was one of also a first one of my first like big spiritual moments here in the physical where I could hear moaning and I could hear like a pain. And I just knew it was the Earth Mother. And I had never heard anything like that before. I never felt anything like that before. I'm not on, you know, doing any drugs. There's no psychedelics. There's nothing. It's natural sweat lodge. You're just sweating with hot stones and water. And that is the power of what it does. And I just heard Earth Mother. And so when I came out of it, my life was changed. And I just mm. told her I would protect her as best as I could. And I, you know, I try to do as best as I can. I feel like I could always do more. But sometimes even just getting the word out and spreading the love can, you know, I'm praying is, is enough, is enough, you know. 
Yeah, bring me into that. I've never been in a, a sweat lodge. Uh, bring me into that place. Tell me what it was like. Um, just walk us through it for those of us that, that haven't experienced that. Well, I went to this primitive skills school and uh, I was taking classes. And, and in short, you learn how to make primitive shelter, uh, how to find water, how to filter water, um, what, you know, how to, how to uh, hold water, whether it's clay pots or birch bark uh, baskets that are sealed up with pitch pine, um, how to find edible food, how to find um, medicinal herbs, um, all the things that we naturally used to know as humans. And so this was a life, this was a lifestyle thing that I was going to experience. And then I went and lived in the woods for six months to work for uh, a school. And so when I did the sweat lodge, you it is a ceremony so you are going in there to basically just journey and i knew about ceremonies and stuff like that a little bit here and there but it was honestly still i was still very juvenile to the to the to it and i would highly recommend it before anybody do any other type of journeying um uh, and it just takes you where you need to go it, it shows you what you need to see on, on a very natural scale. And again, it changed my life. I didn't expect, I didn't go in there with that intention to like be reborn into yeah. a child of the earth, but that's what happened. And I just looked at everything different and I could feel, I could feel the earth and I could see her and talk to her. And it was amazing. And, and how long does this experience last for? Oh, I think that lodge probably lasted maybe 30 to 40 minutes. Oh, so so pretty quickly. So I was thinking some some sort of longer. Uh, yeah, timeline. that one was about forty minutes. A lot of times they'll stay for hours, but was was what ended up being like forty minutes felt like uh, hours. Your time is gone. Time is mm -hmm. just removed, and that's part of why. Um, that's part of um, shamanic journeying and uh sweat lodges and, and doing these things is to remove time and space so that you are just there to receive things in different realms i mean if you i don't know how quantum we want to go but um it was it was a beautiful learning experience that literally changed my life and i feel uh has brought me to where i am today and you sort of ended up there by this being lost in the woods on that one camping trip. How, how did that happen? And how did you find your way out? I honestly started getting like a little bit burnt out. It was the beginning of me getting burnt out with the industry mm -hmm. and not even just with the industry, but I'm, I'm a workaholic. I love what I do so much that I don't stop and never having, not being able to play sports anymore or like do contact sports. I had to find something else. So I started, was like, maybe I'll try camping and hiking. Um, mm -hmm. And hiking, I would always do, but camping, I never really did more than a couple times. And so I went to, to do it on my own and uh, I saw a bunch of coyotes. There was like four coyotes that were like kind of trailing me. And I was like, I literally have no idea what I'm doing. And that bothered me as a human that mm -hmm. I didn't know, you know, which way to go or what I could eat. Mm -hmm. So it was very humbling. I like being humble. That's why I love, uh, that's why I love nature. Every time it will humble you. Now, why do you think so many people, you know, including myself, I can uh, be guilty of this, uh, ignore the importance of protecting the environment? Because we're not connected to the environment anymore. Mm. Our shelters insulate us from the outside world. Um, and, you know, this is part of evolution. Like having nice homes and these things is great. But when it becomes a detriment to our natural environment, then we become a then we become a virus. And so we have to just find a balance. I think that's what we're here to do. Like 
uh, you know, having a nice home, driving nice cars, we can have these things, but we have the technology for them to be non-detrimental to our environment. There is solar, or if we can't use solar, there's other types of systems that are out now. If, you know, um, we need to change how we live, but we don't need to um, leave our suburbs and our cities to do that. We just need to um, uh, alter and sort of fabricate to find a better balance so why we don't have it is because we're so insulated and we don't go outside anymore we simply just don't go outside yeah how have you been able to build that connection i left new york city i moved to a state where i can live outside i built a cabin and i'm choosing to live off grid my my um my Toilet is a composting toilet. It's a very expensive one, <laughs> but um, <laughs> because you know, um, you know, you'll be dealing with your own stuff. Um, but I, but you know, uh, and again, I so uh, I, I lived in a tent for six months, and part of that six months, I was living in a natural shelter. I was living in this A-frame shelter. It was the summer, and I realized how much how little I needed. And so that changed my whole lifestyle. And also being visiting and teaching. In Japan, I saw how minimal and simple they lived, and I was like, "That's the lifestyle I want." And so, so now, how I did it is I purposely am changing my lifestyle. Instead of living in the city and going hiking and camping ten percent of the time, I wanted to live that and go into work into those bigger cities only when I needed to. Mm. And it's great now because I can do most of my work from home, which means I can do my work and then go play outside and chop wood or move stuff or just simply do nothing and watch, you know, chipmunks run around and that crazy. Yeah. <laughs> how how do you uh, foster your creative side being being kind of removed from what people would say the the apex of creativity in New York City? My problem is I have too many ideas. Mm. I have way too many ideas uh, and I'm learning now as an artist uh, and as a creator to take these finished products and ideas and scripts and things that I'm doing and then, and then, and then actually get them into the world. So that's what I'm working on now. So, but fostering my artistic thing, I don't actually have a problem because this is the point of space is that when you allow yourself space, when you allow yourself time away from social media, when you allow yourself time away from the television, you are going to create mental, emotional, and physical space. And what fills that space? It could literally be stillness and silence. And then after a while, you might want to fill that with a song, or you might want to fill that with some writing, or you might want to fill that with reading a book. This is what I think most great artists have done, is they've left and created space. So um, that's what I wanted as a human and as an artist is to just create space for a couple years and create here and there without a, um, a need to make a product or to create a brand. I, don't want, I didn't want to create a brand. I didn't want to make a product for yeah. sale. I just wanted to be a human and create space to simply have um, – create a oneness within myself and in my environment. Seth, that's, that's really powerful. And thank you for drawing, uh, you know, our attention to that. I think that's really important. What you just said, it's a great reminder for me. So I, I appreciate that. As you built your, your home off the grid, I'm involved with uh, different construction projects and so forth. What was something you ran into that you didn't expect? Uh, so what I learned about this is that I'm never going to build my own home again. Uh, the first thing I learned is to hire a contractor from the beginning. So 
I learned I'm a master at what I do. I'm not at, at construction or these other things. And I think that I've, I have a, uh, I don't have enough pride to say, I, I'll figure it out. I'm like, I got a month in, I was like, no, I'm good. I'm going to let a master do that. So that's another thing I would suggest to humans and artists. If you're not great at it and there's somebody else that can, and you might have to pay them money, even more money than you want to pay them, just do it. You will not regret it later. So that was the very first thing I learned. Um, the other thing I learned is, is that uh, it takes a lot more planning than uh, I was even ready for. So I made what would be considered a lot of uh, mistakes in terms of my plumbing is on the inside and made of copper as opposed to inside because I was going along. Initially, this was going to be just a camp for me to live more outdoors, but it turned into a home. Mm-hmm. And and it is turning into what it wants to be, what it needs to be. So that's mm-hmm. that's the other thing I'm learning about starting from the beginning is is that if you're going into a home and you're renovating, you know you can have ideas. But I think what I'm learning again as a human and as an artist, and I think we I, I would suggest that people learn is that no matter whether you go into writing a script or you're going into renovating a home or building a home, there is a relationship that I was not even aware of, which is what does the house want? What does the land want? Interesting. And the land I was, I knew to listen to the land and the land kind of told me where to build just by how it, where the slope was and where the water wasn't and where the trees were dead and needed opened up. Right. So I was just like listening and watching, but there is a relationship with everything and then and slowing down and listening to it is is a skill in of itself that I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those would be my two things is hire somebody who's a master. Don't pretend like you know everything and then slow down enough to like hear the other side of the relationship. With the copper pipes, what, what did you mean by that? Oh, I mean, my water's on the inside of my house and in, 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 uh, in exposed. But I was like, oh, I'll make it manly and let it be exposed, whatever. Oh, you know, I got brick and I got brick yeah. and stuff. And it was a go along process because, you know, I didn't have money to just like pick a, 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 a home out of a catalog or like build like a dream home. I built what was needed for the land. This is like yeah. about minimalism. Mm-hmm. This is about creating space. Yeah. Yeah. That, okay. That makes sense. I was, I was wondering, well, if they're not on the inside of your walls, where would you put the, the copper, but you're saying it's just exposed and you it's might exposed have uh, on the outside of, on, on the, in, uh, on the outside of the, uh, of the, uh, drywall. Seth, getting a bit more into your creative side, although you building a house and talking about the space, uh, we dived right into that. Um, you enjoy writing, you enjoy many different types, such as comedy, action, superheroes, musicals, as you're doing your writing, as you're creating, how do you go about developing characters? I probably do everything in reverse from what is recommended. So <laughs> actually I do. I do. I, I completely do. And this is what I've learned for myself is, is that I create from a nonlinear perspective, which sometimes takes me longer. So let's get to characters, right? I don't think about characters. I think about the story and how I want to make the audience feel. That's mm. always how I've perf- that's always how I've been as a performer. I'm not so worried about as much as a character initially as how I make people feel, and maybe that's from me taking things from a dancer's approach. You know, I just know at this point I'm gonna make you feel this, and by this point I'm gonna get you right here because you're gonna be feeling this, and then I'll go into the character. So 
I like to create what I want to happen, the action, and then the overall world, and then the cre- and then the character's depth comes later. But it's taken me a long time to learn about characters and their backstory. Um, because I'm more excited by creating the overall picture. Mm. Um, and through writing, I've learned to bring other people in that are great at uh, developing characters. So writing has taught me where my strengths are and where they're not. And, uh, and for me to tell another potential writer to say, hey, this is what I'm really good at. This is where I need help at. And let's do this together. And it allows somebody else to know, okay, I can see where this is picking up. So for me, developing characters is it's all how they're going to react to the story. So you, you really attack it through feeling. How do you, how do you go about accessing that and, and really getting that on paper or getting that on the screen or, or however you're going to display it? Mm, I mean, you just got to start writing. Mm. Uh and you have to be prepared that there's going to be millions of edits. So the first thing that I, I, I don't really like break down my approach. So this is actually mm-hmm. great for me because you're actually helping me like do myself in another way, right? I just go. I just freaking go. If you haven't felt my energy, I just, just go, just go, right? Um, just full speed ahead. And, uh, you know, it's gotten me to a great point in my life, but the just go has also like burnt me out. So um, again, I'm learning balance, right? Um, but I would suggest, especially for young people, just go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're going to mess up and it's great. And, and, and it became a part of the learning process. So I just knew I was like, when I, as I'm creating, I would be like, well, what would be dope here? That's literally what I'm saying to myself. Like, what would be dope here? And why is this important? And does it really make sense? So those are the things I always ask myself. Like, what would be dope here? Does it make sense? And why? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I do as a creator is I look at what makes sense in the world. Like, you know, whether it's from a, a, a – or what formats are being used, whether it's from comedy or superhero or you name it. And I look at the formats and I go, what's missing from that? And from that world, what, what hasn't been done in that world? And I think about, okay, well, you know, um, I made a, a, a hip hop superhero film where the characters are rapping and, you know, I'm, I've been pitching this idea and again, nobody likes it. Not, not that nobody likes it. Nobody's picked it up yet, but I looked at the world and I see what's missing. I was like, this would be dope in mm-hmm. this world because of this type of culture and because of uh, these types of fans and because of da 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 and because it's me it's me as a I guess as a fan of many different things wanting to see a um, a hodgepodge come together and actually make sense so I tried to create that hmm. I tried to create that world that I as a hip-hop fan a superhero fan as a, uh, a you know an MMA fan or a classic car fan. Mm-hmm. I try to bring all of them into these worlds. And because I know there's other people out there like me, that will be like, yo, that'd be dope if. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then I write it. And most of these will never be seen by the light of day, but that's okay. It's, it's also the process of writing eight scripts that I now have four that I would actually do something with that I've learned a lot. 
And so that's why I tell people, just go, just write it, just make a shoe. Who cares if it's the ugliest shoe? By the time you've made your eighth shoe, you're going to have something kind of dope. Even if you think it's ugly, there's enough of a market out there in the world now that people will think it's dope because people are buying dad sneakers now, you know? <laughs> so there's a market for everybody. So that's mm -hmm. kind of how I create is I just go. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Just go. So often, you know, I fall victim to this. You know, I stay up in my head and debate oh, all too. of these things and oh, nothing done. That just go. And then I also love how you pointed out just go, but go out of your passion. Go out of what you are. That's the hardest in. thing, Matt. Right? That's the hardest thing, Matthew. And you know what? You know what? Uh, I feel like the antidote is for that. Mm -hmm. Space. Right. Because we get in our head when we're when we don't have enough space. When we're filling it with other uh, social media and TV, we don't have the space because we're comparing. Like, ah, well, that's been done before. And so I literally detach from. You have to detach yourself. You have to detach yourself and it's kind of hard when we work every day and we have to be on these devices. Right. But it yeah. is a, it is a, it is a choice. Like I don't, I just took Instagram off my phone again. Mm -hmm. If I need to access it, I'll go to my computer or I'll go through a thing. But so the way to get out of your head is to get off the input. Hmm. You are, if to be a creator, you're doing, you're going to be giving output but you have to empty your cup. You have to clear the, the you have to clear the factory of your brain mm. from all this other input. Let it clear, let it settle, yeah. and then you can create output. But the clearing process could take a couple months, a couple weeks, depending on the type of person you are. Some people don't need to do that, but I am the type of person that I need to clear. So that that's another a potential for some types of people. If you want to create and you're in your head, you've got to create space first. You've highlighted the importance of space, right? You've moved, you've um, done some different things as far as social media. What are some other ways you've created space that's been helpful for your creative process? Meditation. This is all about finding a center point. We're being pulled in so many different directions in this world now that we've never been pulled before. And for me, I get a kick off of it in a way. It's, it's like a, what do they call it? Like a dopamine or whatever, mm -hmm. right? So I had ADHD before they knew what ADHD really was. Okay. But I never, you know, uh, you know, was put on medication. I was just put in a lot of sports. Now as an adult, not being able to physically do some of those things, I have to find new outlets, right? But I know that... I know well enough that we're all have some form of it now and it's because we're getting pulled right by so many different things. So besides creating that still point is we have to have like meditation. So if we don't have our center point to like go from our, what's called a baseline, if you don't know your baseline of how you should like kind of like naturally feel, then you're going to have a hard time in life. Mm. And that's what I've had to learn for myself. What is my baseline? I'm a freaking extremist. And a lot of this I've only learned in the past couple of years. I don't do what most people do. I don't be most people don't want to go live in the woods or take a poop in the woods. You know? Like most people don't want to go backpacking in freaking you know Peru. Like, you know, they don't own a 66 Cadillac and like, dude, like I'm different. You know, I'm a grown man who owns a tiger onesie. I'm different. <laughs> right? 
but I know my baseline because I have to like slow down and that's what everybody's going to need, whether they are, um, there's different baselines to everything. So there's a baseline in the culture, in the hip hop culture. There's a baseline in, uh, teaching a certain type of education. There's a baseline in this, but you have to know your own baseline. And that's what I've been actually working more than anything else. I know how to, I know how to, to, to be, a, a um, to be a business person. I know how to go on stage and kill it. But mm -hmm. if I don't, if you don't know your baseline, if you don't know what you really like and what you really want, it's, you're going to have a hard time navigating to know when to pull yourself back to say, I need space or to be like, no, I actually need to quit crying. I need to get up off the couch and I need to go. Yeah. So that's why all of this is, that's not just where I'm at in my life right now. It's where I've always tried to operate from hmm. so that I can be full to, to, to give the output. Cause as a, as a, doing eight shows a week for years, or going on tour, all I do is output, output, energetically, output, output. Mm -hmm. So I've, I know my body and I know my mind as a system and as different systems in one thing. But people don't know their own systems. And so that's what I'm encouraging as a human. And I'm encouraging as a student and I'm encouraging as an educator. Is mm -hmm. As a student, I need to know my baseline. As a teacher, you need to know your student's baseline and, what you're trying, and the baseline of what you're trying to educate them in. So I kind of just went like four different places, but we'll come yeah, back to you. You're sort of breaking it down for us in, in, in a new way. We started talking about your creative process and then you're sort of weaving it into a way of life and how we can even transfer it not only to our creative process, but like you just said, to our education, to how we're learning, to how we're teaching, to how we're living, to who we really are. And, uh, and that's what yeah. I love about what, what you're sharing today. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew, for bringing my feedback on the ground. Yes. So <laughs> my, my process, <laughs> my process, uh, comes from a still point and then creating a passion and looking at what's missing and then going from there, you know? So, and I, and that's just what it's going to be for, for, for people for their lifetime, you know? Um, yeah, I remember when we were doing In the Heights Off-Broadway at 37 Arts, and it was Barishnikov Studios. And Barishnikov was still in there before our rehearsal at 10 a.m., warming up at in his 50s or 60s. Oh, wow. And I go, what makes that man go in there and stretch and warm up? Because he's, he's not going to give a performance at his age, but what is it for him? You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. it's the space. It's the stillness. It's like the still point of like what he knows and... Uh, I think what I'm seeing as a person, um, again, talking about creative processes, everybody just wants to put out products mm. with no real intention behind it except it being a product and a brand. Mm. But then you're, but then you fall short longevity because then you're always. Uh, I'm, I know I'm taking us somewhere else, Matthew. So go roll. Bear, bear with me. Let's take this <laughs> ride. Let's take this magic carpet ride. Let's, let's go for it. Okay, so here's what I'm seeing as an artist, mm -hmm. uh, speaking about process, uh, but I think it's very important for all of us to know. When you're just worried about output and just putting something out there and, and putting out mass stuff, mm -hmm. your product will has a potential to fall short. 
because it's then not about the product. It's literally just about what's at face value. And that's what's happening in the world. From an environmental standpoint, fast fashion is killing us because they're just trying to get as much product out there to sell as possible. And it's crap quality. For videos, for artists, they're just trying to like post and post and post. Mm -hmm. But they're all miserable because they're so tired of just having to post, post, post. They Mm -hmm. don't know their, their product. So what will help that is creating like the space to know what we're really putting out there and why. Hmm. And I think we'll be able to get to a point where we'll be able to take so much time and space to create such a good product, a one good product without the need to get famous or have a lot of people see it. Let's create one good song. Let's create one good act of this play Hmm. and then get people aboard because this is what happens in all shows. Uh, everybody's out there looking for the fast fashion. Everybody's out there looking for the fast fame. But in anything that's created from a car to a musical to um, a television program is a right foundation and taking the time to create it great. Then the product lasts for 10 years instead of you doing 10 years of creating 4,000 videos. Interesting. I think that that's what I would really suggest and what I'm trying to learn. Instead of me putting out 4,000 videos to, to, so that you don't forget me, I'm actually okay with stepping away, creating a great product, one great product, uh, that will work on its own for 10 years. Just by me putting in good medicine of this idea and getting it to the, taking my time, getting it to the right people, that shoe, that script, that car, will last forever. Seth, you said something earlier I wanted to follow up with you about. You said, you know, I might write eight scripts and no one else will see those, but I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's hard to be okay with that. How are you okay with that? (laughs) It's called show business. You just have to. Mm. You know, my, my, my career, I tell this to people all the time, my career is made up of a majority of no thank yous. This is show business, kids. Suck it up. Your, your, this is life. Your life is made up of a majority of no's. Hey, girl, I think you're really pretty. Would you like to go out on a date? No. Uh, excuse me. Uh, what's your name? No. Um, I'd like to audition for this show. No. Uh, I really want to buy that car, but I can't afford it. No. Can I get a loan for this house? No. Your life, people, <laughs> is going to be made up of a majority of no's. You're only there for the certain yeses. So why I'm okay with it is because it was freaking awesome. It was fun, you know? And then we're, so we're going back to the art of, of just creating just to create. Mm-hmm. And that's, and so why I'm okay with it is whatever. Now, let's say I die and somebody finds my scripts. Well, guess what? It's still under my name. So somebody in my family is about to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe it's my little cousin that finds them and gets it to the right person. And that's the divine timing of when that script was supposed to be made. And then my family lineage has it. I don't know, but I just wanted to, I just needed to write Mm -hmm. to literally get it out of my brain instead of these characters stirring in there. Mm -hmm. So out of the eight scripts to 10 to 10 scripts that I started, four of them are only good that I would actually ever like show somebody. 
But again, it's the art of creating. It's the art of just like, let's make an ugly shoe and maybe somebody will buy it. You know, maybe your market's not in the US, maybe it's in Korea. And in Korea, you're the bomb. Mm. Like, widen your uh, vision, people. Yeah, thanks for that tough love. You know, <laughs> you're going to get That's just the enough. truth, man. Like, yeah. short, my, my football coach said this short memory, thick skin. Short memory because you're going to get a lot of nose. So you got to have the short memory on the nose. Thick skin because of that. You only need one. Yes, you only need, you know, one spouse that you're going to fall in love with the rest of your life. You only need one great show to get to the next great show until you got to get to the next great show. You know, you only need one great job that's going to last you for 10 or 15 years. Or you might hate it for three and then you go find another one. But I got to teach the millennials like, yes, you, you should be in a job that makes you happy. But at the same time, suck it up. And maybe you got to do it. Maybe you'll love it in year three. Mm. You're not going to love everything in year one and year two. Sometimes you don't love everything until year three. That's true. That's true. That, that was true for me, too. Seth, I want to talk about Hamilton a bit. You were an original cast member and went on to play Lafayette and Jefferson. What was it like to play two different characters in the same musical? I love it because you'll never get bored. <laughs> <laughs> it's two completely different choices, you know, and I'm sure David probably loved it for the same reasons. I mean, uh, you know, one uh, in one aspect in the beginning of the of the show, I'm a part of the team. I'm a part of, you know, the ruffians and, and, uh, you know, and it's a team effort. And in the second part, you know, um, uh, when I'm playing um, Thomas Jefferson, it's all about me. So I just get to strut, you know. Interesting. Uh, and so one's a team player. One is is LeBron James. Yeah, I've, I've listened to the musical, you know, millions of times. And, well, not millions, but hundreds of times. And seen it on, uh, I never got to see it in person, but seen it on Disney Plus. And I... Uh, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, by the time they get to that point, they're like the, you know, they're like they're they're the, you know, they're the Brahm, they're the ball players, you know? Yeah. I looked at them like the 95, I'm a little bit older, but I looked like the 95, 96 Bulls. Like it was Pippin, you know, Jordan, and the worm. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are like, who's the worm? That's Dennis Rodman, folks. But that's how I kind of approached it. It's like by the time I got to the second act, I was Dennis Rodman. I was the worm. Hmm. And so my whole strut was different. So that's, I love playing two characters. Now, Lafayette has some quick hitting lines. How did you go about practicing that to hit those with precision? Because, uh, you know, around our house, the kids always try to, you know, do Lafayette's lines and, and they can never get it right. Okay. Especially there's a couple sequences. All right. Here's the technique, folks. So David has a natural skill, like, because that's what he, you know, he's an, he's, he's a rapper. He's an MC, uh, And... Uh, so he could do some of those things probably a little bit more, uh, more natural than I could. So I would, I knew I'm a, I'm a hip hop fan though. So I took the, what outcast did, which is they used to run around their pool and rap their album. Hmm. And that's what I did. I lived in Queens at the time. So I went and found this baseball field and I would run from my apartment and I would, and I would repeat the lines and I would rap it. Uh, while running and I would run around the park three times. I would run around the three baseball fields three times and then I'd run back home. And I hated my life because you couldn't catch your breath. But mm -hmm. I had, knew I had to do that so that by the time I got on stage and the adrenaline and then having 10 numbers come before a certain rap, that I would have the stamina. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times... I'd be dancing in the show and then I was an understudy. So if David went out, I would take over. And then, but by the time I got to take over the role, you know, I was already prepped. 
So a lot of people just want to do it. No, people, this still takes work. If you're not David, this still takes work. So I would do what Outkast did. I ran around and I rapped. And then sometimes I would rap with my tongue to the top of my teeth. So I would have to pronunciate more and work around my tongue. Oh, it's just wow. old school, just old school techniques. And then just getting it. Reflecting on being a part of Hamilton, what did it mean for you to be a part of Hamilton? What did it mean for you to be able to wear that purple? Mm. I mean, we created Hamilton. So I just wanted to be a part of something great. Yeah. Uh, at the time, it was just, let's make a great show because we want to make a great show. It was about the art. It wasn't about creating, again, for me, and I don't think for most of us, this wasn't about creating a brand of Hamilton. That's right. what I would really love for fans to understand. Or like people are like, Good. what was it like? Like you guys are now seeing the championship rings. You guys are now seeing the brand that is Hamilton. But for us, at least for me personally, yeah. it was about just creating dope art with other mm. dope artists. It was nothing more than that. Hmm. And so that's what it means to me. I was just an artist who worked my butt off to be in a room of other great artists who worked their butt offs to create something great. Uh, you know, we weren't just like lucky. We, we were chosen. <laughs> we were drafted, you know, and that's how I look at it. Like uh, people say, you know, she's so lucky and it's, and I do feel honored and I do feel lucky, but I will stand and say to myself and for people to look up, like you, you have to work to be where you want to be. Everybody can get to that caliber. You just got to work really hard for it. And so I feel I do feel very proud to be a part of the show, a part of the original cast, because I can look at everybody in that cast and I'm and I'm proud to work around such other great, hardworking and ridiculously talented cast members. As you think about many of the angles of Hamilton that are great, right, that, that you guys were able to create, what uh, pops out to you as as the thing that comes to the forefront of its greatness? Oh, that's a good question. Um I, I, you know, this is the first thing that's actually coming to mind is that I keep thinking of David Corrins and I keep thinking of, um, oh my God, he's going to kill me. Uh, the costume designer, um, Paul Taswell. And also even the direction is that, oh, man, this thing was like a Rubik's cube, right? This whole show. Yeah. And Lynn, to me, it was like Lynn, and Alex and uh, the lighting were the fat of the show. They were the meat of the show. But Paul and and David Corns and um, and uh, Tommy on the direction side had to simplify it in a way to where it all kind of worked. And and I think the brilliance of that Rubik's cube is ridiculous because there's so much content. And Tommy had to find a way to simplify it. David Corrins had to find a way to simplify the set so that you weren't distracted from what was already great, which was the meat of the show. Paul Taswell had to simplify it in a way that your focus went to certain things. I don't know. Like, There's just an overall – again, I'm an overall person. When you watch the show, the beef is in the music, in the book, and in the lighting. Mm. But there's the other three parts, the literal counterpart of that, which is the costumes, direction, and set design. And they complement each other so well. And that, to me, is genius. Yeah, that's, that's great. I love that analogy of the, the Rubik's Cube, everything um, interconnected. And, it, and at the same time, it's very complex. Oh, so um, complex. 
we're you know as we get done here uh and we still i still have a couple more questions but as we get done here and and we you know end the conversation and you go and sort of let out your creative juices through dancing a song or singing a song uh what would that song be it doesn't have to be from hamilton just the first thing that comes to your mind what would that song be today after oh, our conversation this is a great this is a great question but immediately it would be umi says U-M-I, Umi Says, by Most Deaf, who is now Yasin Bey. Mm. That would be the song of my life. Yeah, so if y'all want to know about hip-hop, to, to, to the younger cats, get up on Black Star, which was Most Deaf, M-O-S-D-E-F, who is now Yasin Bey, and Talib Kweli. That is an original forever song, uh, forever uh, group, but Most Deaf, had black on both sides and umi says is is that song for me mm. great question so we have some educators tuning in so i want to make sure to zoom in you've been talking a ton about education all of these things i think we could ponder reflect and insert and contemplate ways um, to really transform our education system um, but i did want to ask you a couple specific questions uh, you teach classes, you've been teaching classes, you're an educator. What are some of the most effective methods that you use while you teach? Yeah, so I use what I what I know. Um, I think there's, for, for me as a, as a um, in the performing arts, yeah. I think that there's, no, there's more than two, but I, I kind of take things in two ways. There are the teachers and educators that are the, there on the daily basis, your choir teachers, your, your, your dance teachers, your, uh, your acting coaches and teachers, right? Some of who have had some stage experience, some of who have not. But those are like, oh my God, God bless those teachers. Seriously. Because um, they are the day in, day out. And then you have your other educators like myself who all I want to do is, 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 is take what I've learned from the stage, be on the stage. And I don't want to be with y'all kids five days a week. I just don't. Love you, but I don't want to be there. I know my, who I am as an educator, right? So I want to come in and like give the gems, of like, okay, my so my type of education is like, hey, this is what you need to be aware of when you're on stage. This is what needs to be aware of when the cast starts to feel this or when the audience is not giving you any energy. This is how you can play. Look around, start playing with your castmates on stage so you can keep the energy moving and it doesn't matter what the audience is doing, right? I try to take those techniques. So there, to me, there's two types of educators. The day in, day out, mm -hmm. you know, God bless them, uh, educators who, uh, you know, I want to call them the grinders. I don't want to call them the grinders, but... Uh, I want to find a more appropriate word, um, not the Rocky Balboas, the, <laughs> I don't know, just the angels. We'll call them the educator okay. angels, right? <laughs> who are there with the, the, you know, the kids who can't sit still. Thank mm -hmm. God bless them. And then, yeah. and then the, the ones that come in and teach the master classes. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I know humbly that I'm a master at what I do. I study this and I'm still studying it. And, and it is my job to give as much as I can to students and and their teachers teachers are man need to be paid more in every single educational field so continue <laughs> <laughs> now thinking about you know the way that you learn right through school even you know on broadway all of these different ways that that you learn how do you learn best visually hmm. uh and with history so um I learned best through history uh, I, and I don't like, and I don't always like history, but I'm going to stay in the performing arts, right? I'm just going to stay in the performing arts. What helped me learn is uh, 
again, and, and actually maybe this will help, is, is like being all over the place and having a lot of energy, um, you have to keep my attention. Mm-hmm. So visual stimulation is great for me. Interaction is great for me. If I have to sit there for too long, I'm going to lose my mind. Hmm. Okay. So the other thing is like history. When I see what other people have done before me, um, you know, um, Gregory Hines, when I look up, when I used to go see Save Young Lover, when I used to go learn about, you know, some of the greats, you know, God bless her, Anne Reiking just passed away. When I watch some of their videos, that's what would inspire me. You know, so I think that inspiration is also great. Whether you want to be a science uh, student, who were the great scientists? What did they make? Can we make what they made? Like, can we blow stuff up? Can I, Can we make a Tesla coil? Like, that, I need to be hands-on. So mm-hmm. that's how I learn best is visually hands-on. And I think I don't – from what I'm seeing how students have changed over the past 15 years as an educator is they want more hands-on. And giving them that homework like, you will not enter this classroom – if you do not know who Bob Fosse is, you will not enter this classroom until you know who that director is. And I tell their parents too, they are not allowed in my class unless they go and did these things. Mm. This is not a game. This is education. So that's how I, I learned is visual, hands-on, and, and being showed who came before me. Yeah, and you also talked about interaction, You know, having this authentic, positive interaction with a teacher. How important is that? I just got a little emotional for a second. Um, teachers have it the hardest because they have all these students and now God bless them, they're doing all these Zoom calls, right? Yeah. And so they have a lot of students to juggle. But it was just the checking in of my teachers. Mm-hmm. Like uh, when, you know, I would not be on something. It's just them checking in or them literally pulling me aside and letting, you know, I would be late for like a five-minute class to be like, what's going on? Or something you know i had a lot of energy so i was i was like pent up i it was really teachers checking in and like i feel like my teachers had a progression for us they knew where we were going so it was easy to follow the lead i just think teachers have it harder these days dealing with parents and stuff so the interaction for me was was great um but I really can't speak on that. Those types of teachers, I just, I, I, I call. That's why I call them angels because I don't really know what they go through. I have a really good idea. Yeah, thinking back again on your educational journey, how do you think school? Now this will be a two-part question: mm-hmm. the positive and the negative. Uh, how do you think school helped foster your gifts and talents? And then, in what way, maybe to put it bluntly, did school mm-hmm. fail uh, to do that? I gotta be. I gotta say. I got really lucky. Um, my choir teacher, Mrs. Cruz, if she ever hears this, shout out Mrs. Cruz. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, luckily she had my sister six years before me. <laughs> so my sister softened her up for the terror that was to become me <laughs> six years later. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> So I think I got really lucky. We, we, we got to like go on choir trips. We got to like, you know, uh, go to uh, like some choir competitions. Um, sorry, I got emotional. Matt, can you bring that, that first part of the question back? Great. So how did uh, school help foster your gifts and talents? And then the, the opposite side of that, how, okay. how did school fail? How did school foster my, my talents? Sorry, my, I, I, uh, I got emotional actually thinking about my choir teacher because mm-hmm. – you know, these people, these people, these people build you, 
Um, I got to give her a call. I'm going to give her a call. Um, so it fostered it because it, because music was still in school and having a place to go to day in and day out choir, or I didn't really do theater. I wasn't a theater kid. I thought theater was whack actually. Um, (laughs) I just kind of like, I think I did a play and I was like, no, I'm good. Um, but having a place to go in day in and day out, um, was great for me, whether it was football or choir or dance, you need to go somewhere. You need to get out of your house and do something. And I think that, um, my parents pushed me to like, go do something. So not only did I have choir in school, but I had an after school. I feel like if kids don't have an after school program, uh, they're going to be getting there. There's a potential to like, you know, not have a vision for their life. So I feel like school helped me have a daily discipline with that. And then where I think it failed, um, Again, I don't think my school failed from where I grew up, which is in Kent, Ohio. I, I think I got really lucky, but where I think our school systems can fail is if they remove arts and sports and sciences, not giving kids a place to go. Because if you didn't give me a place to go, I'm going to get in trouble. So I think it's the duty of like each community to make sure that their schools have these things because... I wouldn't be where I'm at without my school having this in place. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, if your school doesn't have the funding because it got defunded, fundraisers, do something. Do something for your kids. We, we, we have to learn about tribal, tribal ways and community ways mm. again, you know? regardless of somebody else's political position or that parents, this, who cares? This is your, your kids are going to the same school, the same community. So just create it and put differences aside. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that reminder. Um, Seth, this has been wonderful uh, talking with you today as we wind things down. Who do you want to give a shout out to? I didn't think I had a shout out, but I'm going to give a shout out to my high school and middle school choir teacher, Mrs. Donna Cruz. Uh, and the whole Kent City Schools um, back in Ohio for building me up. I want to give a shout out to, you know, um, my parents, my sister, my uncle for always building me up. And I want to give a shout out to my my dance teachers, Miss uh, Linda James and Miss Carol James. I love y'all. Thank y'all for building me. I'm here because of you. And, uh, you know, uh, that's it. I appreciate you having me on your show, Matthew. That's great. Well, I'm not done yet because it's oh, time. More? Final word. <laughs> what okay. would you like to say to close out this podcast? Ooh, I would just like to say, this is your life. Do what makes you happy and don't wait on anybody else. And shine your light on the world. Like Umi says, hey. Seth, this has been off the charts. Thank you so, so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time sharing your experiences and helping us dive deep. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.